things first. This is about truth telling. I have no agenda. Zero. I always have questions. What's the problem? That's just who I am. This is what no mercy is all about. Hey, here I come. You can book it. Ah. This is the moment of a lifetime. The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who gon' stop me high? Who gon' stop me high? Breath taking a move that I make. I give it everything I got. Cause that what it takes. I push the limit till it break. The heart of the brave. The soul of a legend with the will to be great. Hold up. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to the Stephen A. Smith Show. We're on, a, at the very least, we're on every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday afternoon, so make sure to tune in. As always, thank you for your support. We're here in my studios. Thanks to our official studio sponsor, FanDuel Sportsbook. FanDuel is the official sports betting company of the Stephen A. Smith Show. Please make sure to like and follow the Stephen A. Smith Show on YouTube. Click the bell to get notified of all of our new content, and please do make sure you pick up a copy of my New York Times bestselling book, Straight Shooter a memoir of second chances and first takes. I was looking forward to talking to this individual. He is my guest today. He is a, sick, a second term U.S. Congressman representing Florida's 19th congressional district and one of just two black Republicans currently serving. He sits on the House Oversight and Financial Services Committee and is a member of the House Freedom Caucus. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the Stephen A. Smith Show, Congressman Byron Donalds. Congressman, sir, how are you? How's everything going? Man, I'm good. Uh, look, I got to tell you real quick, Stephen A., sure. man, I've been watching you for years, man. I'm a fan. Uh, I'm also a sports junkie. Most people don't really know that. So uh, really? big fan, excited to be on. Man, thank you so much. I'm honored to have you. First of all, before we even get into all of that, who are you, since you're a sports fan, who's your favorite team? I need to know the answer to this question. Who do you root for? Man, listen, I root for the Lakers. Okay. And I root for America's team, the Cowboys. Oh, and I know Lord. you got issues, but that's oh, my, my team. Oh, my Lord. Oh, my Lord. You done messed up. You done messed up now. I mean, I, I, <laughs> you done messed up. There's no hope for you now. I mean, do, do you understand that the Dallas Cowboys will contaminate you? If you have any aspirations for office, higher office, other than being a congressman, you know being associated with the Cowboys could ruin that, right? I mean, you have no chance. You have no chance. Oh, no. No, I don't agree with that whatsoever. Let me tell you why. Listen, first of all, we know the Cowboys are number one in merchandise worldwide. We understand that more following than anybody. But listen, I'm a fan for real. Like I've been in purgatory for a long time since 1995. Mm -hmm. I just need Dak to make a couple throws. That's all. I did you just say that? Yeah. So in other words, so in other, that's all you need is Dak to make a couple of throws, right? Now, you've been waiting for eight years. You got two playoff. You only got two playoff victories. You know, it takes three, at least three playoff victories to win a Super Bowl. The man's got two in eight years. So you still wait for him to throw you a pass, throw you a good pass. Listen, man, just connect with our receivers. They'll do the work. I love our defense. Right. And I feel like we got what we need to go get the job done. Let me, let, let me, let me, I'm going to root for you, man, because I, I I like you already because you done mess. I was looking forward to talking to you and then you messed up bringing up the Cowboys, but I'm going to get this interview back on track because I don't want them to mess up your career. I don't want the Dallas Cowboys to mess up your career. Before I even get into politics, I, I really want people to get to know about you. I've been doing my research. I learned a lot. You're a New Yorker born and raised in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. Tell me what it was like for you growing up in New York, in Crown Heights. Give our audience that perspective. You know, I mean, look, it was tough. <clears throat> you know, it was real tough. Um, my mother and I, we, you know, we grew up poor. Um, you know, my youngest sister was born when I was in middle school. You know, my mom was out of work for a while. You know, we really struggled. But for her, it was about education. She, her, her value set was get your education and do whatever you need to do uh, to not become a statistic, to escape what happens to a lot of young black kids, you know, when I was growing up. And so, you know, she did everything she could, to, you know, just try to keep me from the streets, keep me focused, played a lot of sports, a lot of basketball, a lot of baseball. And, uh, you know, when I graduated high school, you know, I went to Florida A&M in Tallahassee and the rest kind of just took off from there. But growing up, man, I remember walking to baseball practice at Prospect Park. And this is when I was like 10 years old. I'm going to get the train and you see crack vials all over street corners in the morning and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And you just kind of learn to just keep your head on the swivel, keep your head down, stay focused, uh, try not to get caught up in a lot of stuff. 
and just find a way to be successful. You went to FAMU, one of my boys, the great Will Packer, movie producer and what have you. He went to FAMU. My CMO, Sharonda Britton, she went to FAMU. I know a whole bunch of people that's going to FAMU. And I'm wondering, listening to you, what had more of an impact in terms of shaping your life, shaping your life to the point where it is now? Was it that growing up in Crown Heights or was it more so fam? You obviously both had a profound impact. I certainly don't mean to imply that that was not the case, but I want to know what do you think had the most impact? The streets of New York City or FAMU and HBCU? Well, it was it was actually a combination of things. I think, you know, the streets in New York, what it always taught me growing up is, you know, nothing's never truly personal. Everything is business. You know, you just got to be aware of, of what's going on at all times. Being at FAMU was just an awesome experience, the highest of Seven Hills in Tallahassee. Uh, but even during that time, that's when I really had to learn to grow up. And I told you, my mom is tough. Um, and so when I was out on my own, made a lot of mistakes, you know, really almost uh, destroyed my life and did a lot of stupid things when I was in college. So, you know, I really had to get myself together. That started at FAMU. And then I transferred to Florida State also in Tallahassee, graduated from Florida State. And the last piece of that was, you know, I, I found I found God, you know, uh, my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, she was going to church, trying to get herself uh, in order and together and asked me to go. And I went with her and I felt like the pastor was talking to me, honestly. Mm -hmm. I felt like he called everybody that knew me and was reading the script of my life. And it was really the combination of all those experiences that put me on the path to, to where I am now. Now, when I bring up, when you talk about your struggles, I'll bring them up for a second, but I want to preface my comments by saying I don't bring it up for that that gotcha nonsense and all that stuff. I couldn't stand when you're running for office, for example, and you got somebody that's running against you and they're trying to bring up stuff from years ago just to derail your political ambitions. But I have an obligation to mention it was a scheme to defraud a bank, a bank like a, a $1,000 check or something along those lines. And you talked about how you had to make restitution to the bank in excess of $7,000. There was something like that. There was a pre-trial diversion program that you ultimately became a part of. You've been on the record saying that saved you because it had something to do with marijuana. I want you to explain to our audience specifically those two things, what you went through and how um, that ultimately helped you get to where you are today, because you've alluded to that in the past. Sure. I mean, look, when I was 18, I was picked up for possession of marijuana. Um, it was just really stupid is what I was, you know, I was just. And with friends. That was and, after you left New just, York and went to college, right? Yeah, it was yeah, after you yeah. I, I was in Tallahassee. I right. was in Tallahassee. And I got picked up for that and went through diversion. And, you know, that should have been the thing to get my head screwed on straight. But, you know, I just was feeling almost, you know, when you're a kid, you feel like you're invincible. Like you can do a lot of things to try to find your way through it. Right. And so, you know, what happened with uh, the bank issue was I was desperate, out of money, didn't have a job, just trying to find a way to get to the next month. And, you know, my pastor, he always he said to me once, he goes, you know, people are always 15 seconds away from stupid. Mm. He said, but when you're desperate, people are three seconds away from stupid. And I was desperate and I was three seconds away. And so with that situation, I pled no contest to it, had to serve two years probation. Um, there was like a much bigger thing going on and I was a small piece of it. I let them basically have access to my debit card and my account. And even as I was doing it in my mind, I'm like, this is the wrong thing to do. But that desperation really grabs a lot of people. And, you know, it grabbed me. So, you know, I remember from that day forward, I remember I said to myself, you know, I just am never going to end up in this situation again. And then every day after that's been a, uh, really about purpose. Mm -hmm. Every decision leads into the next decision, not taking these things for granted, not being just living day to day or living from emotion to emotion and not having a goal and a purpose in mind for what you're doing with yourself. And I, I really believe, like, like I said, like all those things together mm -hmm. have put me on the path to where I am now. Man, I got to tell you something. I get exactly where you're coming from, but not, I shouldn't say exactly because I didn't I didn't do anything uh, that that took it that far. But I remember two incidences. I was young. I was a teenager and I tried to steal from a local deli and the owner caught me and grabbed me and caught the cops on me. And they took me home. And, you know, my father, you know, whipped the living mess out of me. And another time, you know, I jumped over the turnstile and got caught by the cops and they scared the living hell out of me by trying to convince me the subway over there in Queens Boulevard. Forest Hills, actually, because I was born, I was born in the Bronx and raised in Hollis, Queens. And I remember the officers took me to the side and they were treating me like I was I was I was a, a career criminal for crying out loud. 
But I remember they scared me to death so much that I said, I will never, ever, ever find myself in this situation again. It's little things like that that, you know, you know, I'm saying those officers probably saved my life. Who knows how many stupid things I would have done had they not checked me. But I bring that up because you are obviously a, 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 a congressional figure. You're a congressman. You're on the Republican side of the aisle. I want right. to know the experiences that you have. Most people that have those experiences who are black find themselves leaning towards being a Democrat as opposed to a Republican. How did you end up on the Republican side of the aisle? So like my early life and even through college, even my young adulthood, I wasn't into politics. I didn't really care, man. I was more into sports. Mm -hmm. You know, like I said, I'm a sports junkie, love basketball. I'm a basketball junkie. Right. And so it was about coaching, coaching my young sons, coaching kids in my in my community here, just being in my church, being a youth leader, really about that, that process of just building yourself. I was in my career in finance. I was working in banking and I worked in insurance. Mm -hmm. And when the financial collapse happened in 2008, my company came to me and they said, you're the only person with like a real economics background. Can you dig into this and figure out what's happening? Mm. And so I remember, you know, I turned on uh, the House Financial Services Committee and I was watching these members of Congress, the leaders of our country, talk about the financial collapse. And man, truth is, Stephen A., they didn't know what the hell they were talking about. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm in the field doing the work day right. by day, right. but I'm watching the, the congressional hearing. I'm like, who are these people? And so like that kind of started me down a journey. I, that's the first time I really started paying attention to politics. And then I started reading books because like cable news didn't make sense to me. It was it was really just real short and no real details, yep. no substance. And I sort of started reading books about politics. And then the Tea Party movement started in like 2010. And I remember on the news, they were just saying, oh, they're a bunch of racists. Um, and stuff like that. So I said, you know what, I'm gonna go out and see what it is. Because my mom always told me, you know, don't follow the crowd, you need to figure things out for yourself. Don't just listen to what everybody else is saying. Mm -hmm. So I go out to one of these rallies just to see for myself. And you know, people were actually gracious. Uh, they cared about spending, they cared about the Constitution, things that I was learning about and really starting to sink my teeth into. And it just started just happening. I would go to these events, sometimes I would talk, sometimes I wouldn't. Um, I was learning how to speak in front of crowds and I really became steeped in limited government and, and, and sound money, partly because of my career. I was a finance guy by trade, but then also I started reading about political philosophy. Mm -hmm. Like uh, the first book I read, which still sticks with me today, is The Law by Frederick Bastiat. Okay. And it's not very long, but it, it talks about what happened in France before the French Revolution and what were the political you know, issues that that spurred and created uh, the, the atmosphere for that revolution. Mm -hmm. So I really, you know, became, you know, what people would call a classical liberal or, or a modern conservative and just kept going. It kept going. And did you find, or should I should say, did you find, since you found yourself involved in politics, particularly being a black man that was leaning towards the conservative side, what has that experience been like for you? As a black man, and I ask you that because I'm going to have Candace Owens on this show eventually and a few others. And I've always wanted to ask that question because I think I know the answer, but I want to hear from black conservatives. What is it like to be black and a conservative in America in this day and age for y'all? Well, I'm going to say like in the conservative movement, the primary thing people care about are ideas, mm. ideas, the Constitution, value sets, policy ideas. Skin color is just one of those things that everybody sees it like they know I'm black the second I walk into a room, mm -hmm. especially since, you know, I basically look like a defensive tackle. So yeah. when I walk in a room, you know, <laughs> and 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 so it's people see it, they understand it, but it's not the primary thing on, on the on the Republican side, on the conservative side. I would say the other thing that is really cool about it, it allows me to bring perspectives from growing up as a black man in America, from trying to make my way as a black man in America to try to bring those ideas and that perspectives to the conservative movement, because there's a lot of great people in our movement. Obviously, it's it's predominantly white. Everybody knows that. Mm -hmm. But it's not that, you know, they're not it's not that they're insensitive to what's going on in black America. Mm -hmm. A lot of them just don't know. Right. They just never had those relationships. They never had that engagement. 
You know, I mean, like very, very, I'm being honest with you, very rarely you have where it becomes a race issue. Mm -hmm. I can remember probably two times in the last 13, 14 years where it was like a quasi race issue. One guy told a a friend of mine, didn't think it was going to get back to me that, uh, you know, I'd be crazy if I thought a, a black man could win the votes in Collier County, which is Naples, Florida. Mm-hmm. And so when I heard that, my thought process was, oh, yeah, OK, watch this because I'm competitive. That's that's right. me. I'm very competitive. So I was just basically watch that. Watch this. And I ended up getting the most votes in Collier County. The second time I was running for the state legislature and I was out in um, in Hendry County, Florida, and the people out there, you know, good people, God fearing people. Um, it's a rural, very rural area. Mm-hmm. And I could just remember these two gentlemen one time I went to have them sign just a petition to get on the ballot. And I mean, the way they looked at me, I could tell that they just wanted no parts of me. Um, but by and large, everybody was gracious. Everybody w- was receptive. I ended up winning that county, too, when I ran for the state house mm-hmm. back in 16 mm-hmm. and uh, went on to serve those people for four years. As we get more involved in this discussion with uh, with the politics, let me say this to you. I believe you. When you say you're about ideas, meaning you, when you say the Republican Party, that's kind of hard to believe because the Republican Party itself seems focused on rigidity, for lack of a better word. This is the way it was. This is the way it was meant to be. And there shouldn't be any change. While to me, the left it's just too much. It's too progressive. It's too I mean, they say progressive, but it's it's just too. It's, it's almost like. Anything goes. Anything goes. We need more money. So what? The hell with the national debt. The hell with the federal debt. The hell with, you know, you know, certain people's rights, Second Amendment rights, the right to freedom of speech, etc. First Amendment rights, of course, too. All of these things that you think about, it's almost like to the right, to the left, it's too extreme in terms of too loose. Let too much go to the right, too rigid. Do you have a problem with somebody that's a registered independent like myself thinking along those lines. And if so, why? No, I don't actually. I, I find that to be the case most of the time. My, my first comment, I would say, man, just give me some time man. I'll convince you. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at that. <laughs> but in, in reality, I think one of the things that's really occurred amongst the Republican Party is been the focus about how you get elected. I mean, let's just call it what it is. For a long time, the Republican Party didn't really have to reach out to other voting groups to get votes because they could easily get the votes where they needed for the races that they in the white community in the white community in in a middle class, upper middle class community. Mm -hmm. And they would totally win that vote and be fine with it. But politics has changed. It's changed a lot. And it's causing people in the party to realize that, you know what, you actually have to build relationships. Uh, And I'm very critical of the party when it comes to this stuff. You know, you know, I always tell people like, look, if you think you're going to show up in the black community, ask for a vote in September and get it in November, you're fooling yourself because they don't even know who you are. You've not spent time. You've not engaged, not outreach. Outreach is a political term. I'm talking about engagement, relationship building, really understanding what's going on in, in the plight and the issues in all of all the communities in America. And I think that what you're seeing is with the rise of black conservatives, you know, Hispanic conservatives coming into the party. When you see that, it's because there's more uh, perspectives and more demographic groups that are aligning themselves under the banner of conservative policy. And so the policy set might seem rigid, but the way I would say it is, it's just what works. It's tried and true. You know, it's you know, it's effective. Why are you trying to mess up something that's actually has proven itself to work? Conversely, you know, with the with the Democrats or I'll say the progressives. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of their stuff is just plain silly. It doesn't make any sense. It sounds good. It's emotional. Mm -hmm. It might, you know, say something to your to your heart. Right. But it doesn't solve the issues Mm -hmm. that it's trying to solve. And so for me, you know, when I started getting into politics, like I I listen to everybody, I read everybody. My wife will tell you I watch a lot of MSNBC, Mm -hmm. do it all the time. But that's because I'm trying to understand everybody's perspectives. Right. And try to fit it into a policy uh, that's going to work, frankly. But see, this is the thing that bothers me. Because when you talk about how, okay, predominantly white, upper middle class, Mm -hmm. once upon a time. Well, clearly times have changed. Clearly times have changed. You're new blood. Oh, you're 44 years old, right? 
I got you by yep. about, I think I got you by about 11 years, bro. I got you by about 11 years, okay? Yeah, you're 44 years old. You're young, you're vibrant, you're energized, highly knowledgeable, very articulate. You bring what you bring to the table. And by the way, I don't want to emphasize the word articulate because I can't stand when they act surprised that we're so articulate. That's a different subject <laughs> for another day. It ticks me off, okay? Yeah. You get where yeah. I'm coming from. But this is yeah. what bothers me. If you know that the game has changed and the constituency is in other communities, my point to you would be, what should it say to you that they have failed to ingratiate themselves with those other communities, that they haven't gone about the business of really, really working to make those connections? To me, that's not an accident, Representative Donalds. It's not, it, it's not an accident to me. If they haven't made that effort, it's because there's a level of discomfort that they can't overcome and they can't, and they can't conquer. And that, to me, can be very, very telling. To that, you say what? Uh, a couple of things. First, is there a comfort issue? Yeah, sometimes people are like, wait, you need me, you really want me to go and, and talk to other people? Yes, that's what I need you to do. Right. Because if you're trying to win right. and your training regimen isn't working, it's time to make adjustments to the training reg regimen. Mm -hmm. that's, no, that's the first piece. The second piece is when we talk about elections, a lot of times having been through multiple elections now, your political consultants have a fixed way of trying to get elected. What it usually consists of is the candidates sit there and stay on the phone uh, five days a week and raise money. You have people who go on and knock on doors of Republicans to make sure they turn Republican votes out, hardly ever really talk to Democrat uh, doors or maybe independent doors, depending on the district. Number three, you do a lot of TV ads and you send mail to people's houses. But if you're trying to break barriers into other communities where you really don't have relationship, you can't run TV ads and do mail. You have to spend time really engaging different different communities. It's always difficult at first. It's not comfortable at first, but I think that's something that the party's really been engaging in the last couple of cycles. I think it's one of the reasons why you're starting to see in polling now, uh, what is it? Black men are looking like 20% 20, 20 mm. of black men are leaning Republican. I didn't say they're voting Republican, mm. they're leaning Republican. Mm. That's because the engagement factor has started to really break the last couple of cycles. But historically in the party, mm -hmm. I mean, they just didn't do the work. I, I would, it's, it's that simple. I would challenge you on that. And check out how I would challenge you. Number one, okay. I don't think, and I'm talking about your white contemporaries on the Republican side. I don't think that effort is there, you know, directly. You know where I think the effort comes from? Let me reach out to Sean Hannity. Let me reach out to Mark Levin. Let me reach out to the Clay Travises of the world or somebody else and let them communicate with those folks to get them to ingratiate themselves with our party. That's what I think they do. Somebody like you with a boots on the ground mentality, you'll stand, you strike me as a, and I've seen you, I shouldn't say you strike me, I've actually seen you do it. You will stand in a crowd of adversaries and say, let's go. Nobody's scared. I'm right here. Let's discuss the issues. You know what you know. I know what I know. Let's get it on. I don't find your contemporaries within the Republican Party to be individuals who are willing to do that. They want to state their positions in their comfort zone. They don't want to put themselves in a line of fire in a circle of adverse circumstances and stand pat and say, this is what we stand on and we are right. They want to use others to do it for them. You don't strike me as that kind of person at all. You're willing to do it yourself. To that, you say what? Well, yeah, I'm willing to go basically anywhere and, and do what needs to be done because I'm about winning. What about your I think for a lot of my... Yeah, 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 but for my contemporaries, though, uh, for some of them, they want to do this work. They're actually doing it now. Mm -hmm. They don't really get a lot of following and stuff like that. For, I would say, the older members who are my contemporaries, but they've been around a while, no. It's just not in their makeup. It's not in their muscle memory. And it's just something they're going to have to learn. But I will add to you, as the Republican Party begins to get younger, which is happening right before our eyes. I mean, look, President Trump is running. I think he's going to be the nominee. But look at everybody else on that stage. Mm -hmm. They're significantly younger. And I think that that wave of Republicans coming in, you know, we're kind of built that way. I mean, they, these are the people who went to school in high school and college where you dealt with black people, where you dealt with Mexicans, Cubans, you know, Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, mm -hmm. et cetera. And so you already have that base cultural comfort so be able to walk into a room and talk about something difficult isn't as hard for them mm. because they've been through it. You know, I got colleagues, military guys, they served in units. It's the units are completely diverse. 
So when we're on the floor talking with each other or we walk into some rooms and I'm with them, they're just as comfortable as I am. I I think you're going to see a sea change in the party as we really move over the next five to seven years because the party's getting significantly young. This is the moment of a lifetime. The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who gonna stop me high? Who gonna stop me high? In your words, as an elected official, in the year 2023, define your definition of a Republican slash conservative and a Democrat slash liberal or progressive. Give me your definition because I'd like to know. Sure. Uh, Today, it's about for a Republican conservative. Number one, it's about controlling spending. Number two, it's about securing our border. Number three, it's about having a strong military. Those things are pretty consistent. Number four, it's about allowing parents to have purchasing power so that they can choose the the academic environment for their kid. And number five, it's about just having secure cities and secure and and secure streets. And I would add number six is about having a a, a financial system where everybody has an opportunity to borrow money, raise capital, start a small business and not get caught up against crazy regulations that don't make any sense. I think conversely for modern Democrats, Number one, it's about climate change and their desire to get off of fossil fuels. Number two, they're not really concerned about uh, budgets and government spending. I think right now they believe that they can spend whatever and it'll all be okay as long as the U.S. economy is going. Uh, Number three, and this is the one that's difficult for them because they either want to have no military at all or they want to be engaged in military conflict all over the world. That's That's a new phenomenon. I think that's more politically driven. Number four, Um, they are totally fine with just one public education system that dominates where all children can go. And if you're in in, in their view that that's the only way children can get educated, especially poor children in America, I think that's a fundamental difference between Democrats and Republicans right now. As a Republican, what is wrong with the Republican Party right now in your estimation? Because this is the thing that drives me crazy. Nobody... We can be brothers. We can love one another. We can hang with one another 24-7. The same with us as sisters, family. There is no way in hell we agree with everything. Yet you see liberals voting in lockstep with one another and Republicans doing the same. And to me, that's not a realistic way of going about governing. Nothing's going to get done for the betterment of the country if we have that kind of attitude. So I ask you, because it's your party, give me something that's wrong with the party right now that needs to be corrected. Oh, man, we're terrible at messaging. Not me. I mean, I'm actually pretty good at it, <laughs> but the party's not good at it. Right. And I think what happens is their idea of getting the message out is talking to uh, the, the Washington press corps or, you know, going on Fox or going on CNN. I mean, and I do it, too. Don't get me wrong. Right. But it has to be more than that. It really is about engaging in communities. And that's a muscle memory that I'm trying to build in our party, get people to understand that if you want to be successful, yes, you have to go on the Stephen A. Smith show or you have to go on the Breakfast Club. Or, you know, I remember my first year in office, I went on Roland, Mar- Roland Martin's show. He's my it wasn't buddy. the best thing. We basically yelled at each other, but, well. you know, it's OK. <laughs> um, but you have to go into different environments and, and have the courage of your convictions. And I think I'll relate it to you like this way. A friend of mine, one of my good close friends, was running for the clerk of the court in Hendry County, Florida. And so he's black. I went out there to support him. And this is back in 2014, Stephen A. I'm just a regular guy. I'm help, trying to help my friend get elected. So I go out there and I'm cooking hot dogs at the local community center. And a black lady comes up to me and she goes, you're, you're a Republican, too? And I said, yeah. And she goes, man, it's a pleasure to meet you. You guys never come out here. Mm. I just want to talk to one of you. And, and so we had a really good conversation. She's not going to agree with everything, and that's fine. But there are areas of agreement where I believe most Americans are, regardless of their demographics, regardless of their economics, because there's some tried and true, just basic principles that people believe in. And I think the limitation of the Republican Party as it stands right now is the slight apprehension to engage in that. 
Because I, I will say it's a slight apprehension. It's not, they're not opposed to it. People aren't opposed to it, but there's an apprehension. It does exist. When we think about Republicans, though, we think about it as, as, as a black man. I will tell you this. You think about, you hear people like yourself and others take the position that once upon a time, there was a need for affirmative action, but that time is over. Uh, you yeah. sit up there and you, of course, we want less government, but it's almost like the Republican side wants the eradication of government, where if it were not for government intervention, where would civil rights? legislation have gone, where would Voter Rights Act have gone, et cetera, et cetera. And so when I, you talk to me about it, I've never seen your interview with Roland Martin, and that's shame on me because I love my brother Roland Martin. He can be crazy at times, but he's highly yeah. intelligent, very knowledgeable, and I respect the hell out of him because he's real with his passion, even though I don't always agree with him, but I agree with him most of the time. And I definitely respect, respect you a great deal as well. I guess I'm asking is that when we look at the Republican Party, you have people that feel like, hey, they talk about the Constitution. Well, the Constitution called us, you know, three-fifths of a, of a man, of a human being. When people allude to the Constitution, that kind of worries black folks. We're like, wait a minute, you ain't talking about us because you didn't even feel we were full-fledged human beings. You take those things into account and you hear Republicans talking about the Constitution and you hear them talking about the time where, you know, taking us back, driving us back. You see these kind of things that people have alluded to when it comes to the Republican Party. Are you saying they're false, that they have a complete... Um, they, they're completely oblivious to what the Republican Party is all about. You might not be that way, but we're talking about a party and how the party has appeared to conduct itself throughout the last several decades. To all of that, you say what? Well, let's break down a couple of the examples. Sure. First, three-fifths clause in the Constitution. When the framers set it up, what actually happened was is that the Southern states, the slave states, they wanted to count every slave, but they didn't want the slaves to have a vote. They wanted to use the slaves for the purpose of apportionment for having more seats in Congress. And so the northern states were like, no, we're not going to let you use them as a number for you to get more seats. But then they have no ability, no agency to actually vote and speak their mind. So when they formed the Constitution, the compromise was three fifths. That's that's what happened there. With Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act, it was the Republican Party. There's the reason why those acts passed. There were actually five civil rights acts that have been passed in the history of the country. Every one of them has been wholeheartedly supported by the Republican Party. The Democrat Party filibustered all five acts. And the only reason why the 64 Act even became law is because Lyndon Johnson got caught into a political uh, pillar where the Democrats were actually losing ground amongst a lot of people in the country because of their stances with, res with respect to historical support of Jim Crow, et cetera. I will say with where the party has been traditionally or, or contemporarily the last 30 years and talk about less government, it's because what I believe in a, and what Republicans believe is that more government policy, more government regulation actually takes away from human freedom and human liberty. I'm going to give you a, a quick example. OK. In our banking system right now, the, the Democrats passed uh, when Barack Obama came in a bill called Dodd-Frank. It was supposed to regulate the banks and it was supposed to stop too big to fail. Well, what's happened since Dodd-Frank became law is that the big banks got massively bigger and it's community banks that have been basically destroyed under the regulatory burden. If you're a black man in America trying to start a small business, where are you going to get a loan? From? Nowhere. A community bank or from Wells Fargo? Right. A community bank will take more of a chance on you than Wells Fargo Absolutely will. And I used right. to work for Wells Fargo, so I could be critical. And I've had accounts with Wells Fargo. So I know you know I know exactly what you're saying. You're absolutely right. Yes. So to, to me, having bigger government with more rulemaking at the federal level takes away from a human being's ability to be able to determine their own fate and their own destiny with their innovation, their hard work, the gifts God gave them, et cetera. And that really does line up with conservative principles and where the Republican Party is with respect to limited government. And I'll add real quick. Sure. It's not that Republicans want no government. That is not true. Okay. What we want is government in the confines of Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. The government should do its job on the things that are its job no more, no less. The rest should be left to the states and to the people. But the government is the one determining what its job is. In other words, you go up on Capitol mm -hmm. Hill, you, 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 you implement laws and procedures that you have to follow. And what I'm saying is, if there were a bunch of Byron Donalds in there, I'm good. I'm good. It's not a problem. Yeah. But the problem is there's a whole bunch of people that don't look like you, by the way, that are older than you, by the way, that have shown barely any interest 
one would argue, in the upliftment of minority communities throughout this nation. And so when you take that into consideration, essentially, I'll use this analogy because you said you're a sports fan. And of course, I believe you. When people ask me a question about Major League Baseball, Representative Donalds, right? They say, and I was I literally recently sat with the commissioner, Rob Manfred, and I said, this is the biggest reason why there's a paucity of African-Americans involved in the sport more than ever before. It's at 6.2% last check. Once upon a time, like 1991, it's at 18%. It's dwindled significantly. Sure, you go into different parts of the world and you're getting athletes to come in to your sport. But here's the biggest reasons as it pertains to minorities, African-Americans, that is, in this nation. I said you're asking them to trust the system. You could be the biggest player coming out of high school. Still got to go to double A. Still got to go through triple A. Got to get called up. You got to trust that the coaches are going to coach you right. You got to travel and subject yourself to lesser means. And you got to pray that your talents get recognized before you get to the big leagues. And then after that, it's a rookie wage scale and all of this other stuff. So they're owning your rights for like the first seven years. I said, you're asking young black folks to trust a system they will never trust. You're not asking them to do that in basketball. You're asking them to do that to a significantly lesser degree in football. And that's where the participation comes from. I'm using that analogy about politics to ask folks to trust the system or to trust those folks up on Capitol Hill is the biggest problem. Wouldn't you say? Oh, 100 percent. I'll tell you and I'll use your analogy first. I don't I'm in Congress and I don't trust this system. (laughs) If anything, the way the federal government looks and operates is a lot like the Byzantine system from Major League Baseball. It simply is. And I think that if you had a conservative view on how the federal government should be allowed to operate its rules and its tentacles, its reach, it would look a lot more like um, the NBA or the NFL, where it's much more about your ability to run, jump, throw, pass, catch, shoot. Lay up if you have skills, but you're not the biggest jumper, but your skills are so dominant. That is recognized in, in the merit system of our economy. But when you put in so many rules that are put or that are there to quote unquote protect people and to help people and to save people, it actually does the opposite. It actually locks people out. It doesn't give them the room to run and to grow. Mm-hmm. And so then you're asking them to trust that some bureaucrat in some office in DC is going to see your individual situation and help you out. That's just, it's, 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 it's always been illogical to me. And so what I've always wanted is a federal government. It has its role. It does its thing, but the rules to the road are very clear. So it allows you and I to just operate on the field of play. Like right now in the country, you know, with uh, cryptocurrencies, yep. digital assets, we have a lot of young, young black people, young white people um, engaged in that industry. You know what the biggest problem is right now, what Stephen? Is a? What is that? It's that is that the Democrats on Capitol Hill want to overregulate the industry before they even find out what it is. So how are they going to be able to put their couple of bitcoins together mm-hmm. or whatever they have and create a small business that right. could actually thrive when there's so many regulations in the system before they even start? That doesn't make any sense. I give the industry an ability to grow. I agree with that. Can't argue with that one bit. But I would say this to you. You know this from growing up in the streets of New York, going to an HBCU and doing all the things that you've done and, and traveling through the, you know, just experiencing the trials and tribulations that you have. Sometimes, first of all, people don't have a lot of time to know what you know. I don't know half the things you know. I'm a very, very busy man. I would like to believe I'm accomplished. I don't have to, I don't, I don't know what you know. I'm going to go up and read a lot tonight and over this weekend based off of this conversation. But you and I both know most of the constituency out there doesn't know the issues nearly as much as they should. So they rely on individuals. They rely on sound bites. They rely on what's perpetrated over the airwaves, et cetera, et cetera. So let's take, for example, a guy like Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida. He's a Republican Mm -hmm. too. You've had your issues with him, particularly on the the education. I mean, when you think about the teaching curriculum in Florida, what is this? 
educators instructing middle schoolers that, quote, certain slave developed skills, which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. You spoke out against it. Your father of, of, with, with three sons, if I remember correctly, according to my research, and you combated a guy like Ron DeSantis on that issue. What is it like for you to be associated with a, with a governor who is a Republican who would be supportive of something I imagine you found to be an egregious position for him to have? Oh, I don't have a problem with it. It's like disagreeing with one of the players on your team mm. about how you're going to run the play. We are we have the same goal. I think, you know, Ron DeSantis and I, our goals are similar. But on this issue, I'm like, nah, bro, you're wrong. And let me explain why. And, and I think that it's healthy for that to happen internally in the party. What you don't want is for, you know, a governor or somebody to say, this is what I'm doing. And everybody just puts their head in the sand, knowing that it's the wrong way to go. And, and I think that so when you bring up that issue, it's actually really healthy because what the scholars put out, could you say it's technically correct? Yes. But how does it sound? How does that appeal to people? What's going to be the response of people? Will your opponent, when this in this instance, I mean the Democrats, are they going to try to wield it and use it against you? The answer to that is also yes. So that's where I have a responsibility to come out and say, no, that doesn't make any sense. We should make a change to that. And I think that's healthy. And if you have a healthy party where you're allowed to have disagreement with people who are, you know, I'll say we're kind of at the top of the elected side of the party, that makes it for a better party overall. I will be more concerned if I made a statement like that and the entire party came out against me. Mm. That's actually not what happened. A lot of people in the party were like, man, thank you for saying that because I didn't agree with it, but I didn't know how to say it. Right. So when you said it, it actually gave me something to work from to be able to educate other people. I feel about. you about that. I feel you on that because you're talking about a bigger picture and I get that. Yeah. I, the flip side to it, however, is this. If I'm with the if I'm with somebody that I'm aligned with and they can disagree with me on the issue of slavery and how white because that when I went on, I actually went on Fox News. and I said this about Jesse Waters, who actually I, I like his show and what have you. But I'm like, why are you even bringing that up? Why are you even defending it? Why are you even trying to explain what his intent was? It's slavery, bro. That is not yeah. something that we need to we need to find a disagreement on because you didn't go through that. We did as a people. And so for me, it's not just a disagreement. It's the actual issue that you were disagreeing on that made me look at Ron DeSantis differently. But I want to move on because I know we're running out of time and I really, really thank you for your time. And I'm really interested in talking to you about this. How the hell are you supporting Donald Trump at this point? At this point? <laughs> I'm talking about I'm, I'm talking yes. four counts. I'm talking about four charges, 91 counts. I mean, people are talking about he's gonna be. He might you you could be in prison, running a country from prison for crying out loud. Do I think that's gonna happen? Of course, I don't think that's gonna happen. But I'm just saying, how at this point could you possibly support Donald Trump? First of all, I'll tell you right now, between him and Joe Biden, this isn't even a question. Joe Biden sucks. He's terrible at the job, and we do have to acknowledge that before COVID nineteen. Despite all the circus and the phony investigations, you know, the Russia collusion thing was phony. That's now come out to be proven. Despite all of the distractions in the circus, he actually did the job as president of the United States. Every demographic group was doing well under Donald Trump. Every demographic group was doing well. Our border was secure. There were no foreign wars that anybody was talking about that we were entangled in. Our country was booming. Energy prices were low. We were energy independent, something that every politician had said that they wanted to do. Donald Trump actually um, was able to make all that stuff happen. Now let's look at the actual charges. Do you mean to tell me that because a president of the United States had classified documents, who, by the way, former presidents still have their security clearance, they still get the daily presidential briefing, that now somehow this is a threat to national security? That is a joke, especially considering the fact that the only way the National Archives could even bring this this charge, or excuse me, the FBI and the okay. Department of Justice could bring this charge, is that the White House counsel, who works for Joe Biden, had to allow it. That's one. Two, what's going on in Georgia? I'm sorry. Flat out wrong. And every candidate who runs is allowed to challenge election results. Every candidate. It's not some RICO charge. That's insane to me. And then when you take the other two charges, the one in New York, 
That one is just really, really stupid. And then the last one, this January 6th one. Okay. They have no, hold on, this is important, Stephen. I want to lay this out. Please, go ahead. I'm not, they, I'm not they, have, they have no, they have nothing that proves that Donald Trump encouraged, organized, structured anything that happened with January 6th. This is weaponization of the Justice Department against a political rival. And it's flat out wrong. And here's my example for that. Okay. One of my colleagues, Steve, Steve, Steve Scalise, yep. who was shot at the congressional Steve. baseball practice. The shooter said in his manifesto, the reason he went to shoot up the Republican baseball practice is because Bernie Sanders was saying that the Republicans want to take away health care and he felt it was wrong. Are we bringing Bernie Sanders up on charges because Bernie Sanders was using his political speech and it led in a, and it led wrongfully for some knucklehead to come almost kill Steve Scalise? No, we don't do that. That's not the standard of justice. So just because they're using the justice system in a weaponized fashion doesn't take away Donald Trump's liberty to run for office or to be supportive. Of OK, well, office. let me let me let me come back at you. This is just my personal opinion, my humble opinion. Sure. Nothing compared to you in terms of the knowledge, because you do this for a living. Let me say this to you. Number one, I think the charges in New York are bogus. Uh, it's just a waste of time. It's a waste of time, waste yeah. of government. Yeah. Uh, uh, no argument there. No argument there. Georgia there, yeah, they got him on tape with those 11,700 votes he was seeking. Yeah, but I, I get it. I understand you. Now, the files at Mar-a-Lago. You had no business removing them from the White House. You saw the interview that he did with Brett Baer for Fox News, which I thought was mm -hmm. epic. Okay, talking about you had shoes and, and, and socks and whatever the hell else he is in those boxes. Clearly, that wasn't the case. There was files in there. And more importantly, all you had to do was give the Department of Justice what they were asking for. You know, it, it, remember, they came to him and asked him for it, and he had refused to give it back. According to the report, you would know more than me. I'm certainly only going by what I'm reading, okay? So that, that so, so to me, that's problematic because if there's anything that's potentially endangering national or jeopardizing national security, they shouldn't be in your bathroom or your bedroom at your, at your spot at Mar-a-Lago. It should be contained. It should be in a secure location because lives, potential lives, are at stake. Now let's get to the insurrection. I'm going to shock you here. I do think he incited. I do think he was irresponsible. I do not believe it was criminal. I do not believe that. I think it was highly inappropriate and wrong. There's no excuse for him to be when they were trying to certify the election. There was no excuse for him to go out there and rally and tell them we're going to go up to the U.S. Capitol. We've got to stop this and, you know, supporting people screaming about hang Mike Pence, you know, because you wanted to get him not to verify or certify the votes, you know, to make sure, the, you know, the, the transition of power took place peacefully, the peaceful transition of power. I do believe it was an irresponsible thing for him to do, but I don't believe it's criminal. The criminals are the ones that busted into the Capitol. The criminals are the ones that did those things. Not him saying he did use the word peacefully, because I'm no fan of the. I've known, and I'll tell you that story he in did. a second. He but did he say did that. use he the word peacefully. peacefully. He did say that. All right. They want to ignore that, but it's the truth. I got to give, I got to yeah. say that. But it was irresponsible. And in closing, I'll say this I believe the presidency is a statesmanship position. I don't believe that you can be somebody that is as divisive and dismissive of concerns that don't favor you and be the commander in chief of this nation. I think that leads to a divide. I think that's the kind of thing that could create civil war in this nation. And that is my concern. To that, you say what? Well, a couple of things. First, I'll say with respect to the January 6th charges, yes, he said peacefully We'll go to the Capitol. We'll, pe we'll protest peacefully. And in every one of his statements, he's always saying we'll protest, but we protest peacefully and we follow the law. The other thing I will add about January 6th, because of my time on the oversight committee, mm -hmm. is Donald Trump authorized 10,000 National Guard troops on January 4. So if he was trying to have violence at the Capitol, why would he authorize National Guard troops two days before to be at the Capitol? Mm -hmm. And the only person who said no to the, the the National Guard being at the Capitol was Nancy Pelosi, mm -hmm. because Nancy Pelosi, being Speaker of the House at the time, is in charge of Capitol security. I know they don't report on this stuff, but that's the stuff that came out in the Oversight Committee. The second thing I'll say, going on what happened in Georgia, I've listened to that phone call. Everybody's listened to that phone call with him and Raffensperger. 
he's allowed to say, man, hey, I'm just looking for these votes. That yeah, doesn't mean there's a uh, there's a criminal conspiracy. It just no. simply doesn't. Now to the documents. And this is this is the important one. OK, with the document situation, every former president has taken classified information with them when they leave the White House. Every single one. The, the, the National Archives Act gives them a five. The Presidential Records Act, excuse me, let me make sure I say it right, yeah. gives every president a five year period to negotiate back and forth with NARA. It's always been an administrative process mm. with respect to them being the picture of them being in the bathroom. I've been to Mar-a-Lago 10 times now. You just can't walk through Mar-a-Lago willy nilly because Secret Service protection is on the ground securing the president's personal quarters at Mar-a-Lago. So when they show these pictures, that's because the FBI took that picture and then leaked that picture to the press. It wasn't that somebody put it on their Instagram. That's the way they would want it to seem, but that's not actually the case. So the president under the Presidential Records Act, not just him, but every president Mm -hmm. has the ability to go back and forth with the National Archives about what material is in a former president's possession, Mm -hmm. and they do that. I truly believe what happened here is that you had some bureaucrat at the National Archives was basically like, oh, I saw something. Let's go in there and get it. They couldn't do it on their own. Mm. And so you had to have the White House counsel's office sign off on it because the president, Joe Biden, had to basically revoke Donald Trump's presidential privileges Mm -hmm. in order to send in the FBI. That's the issue with the documents case. Okay. So I only got a few minutes left. Let me get to this real quick. I need some quick answers from you. Yeah, we'll go quick. Four indictments, 91 counts. Why bother? I mean, if if DeSantis was in office, if Ramaswamy was in office, if Nikki Haley was in office, if Chris Christie was in office, the, the list goes on. If you were there, According to how you sound, y'all all would probably vote pretty much identical or you'd or, or you'd run the country pretty close to how he did it from a policy perspective. Why don't y'all look at that and go like this? Look, man, we appreciate what he's done as president. We liked him. But you know what? This is a bit too much. Let's move forward with somebody else and get rid of all of this noise. Why can't y'all do that? Well, that's a great question. I think that there are some people who are there, but most of the party in terms of the voters now, the the Republican voters on the ground, they're not there. Mm -hmm. Um, Second thing is, is that, you know, as a Republican, it's all in vogue now to be a a fighter and stand on principle and say no to the media and call them out uh, when they're being ridiculous at a moment's notice. Mm -hmm. But before Donald Trump, no Republican was doing that. They would all turn tail and run if there was any political pressure or any media pressure whatsoever, because they were more concerned about poll numbers and actually doing the right thing for the country. So I think you have a lot of Republican voters who look at them and look at this and they say, when he was president, the country was in a significantly better place. They've been chasing him down for years, not just with the four cases. Go back to Russia collusion, the two impeachments and all that stuff. They've been going after Donald Trump since 2015. And the man is still here fighting these people. And in the mind of a lot of Republican voters, and I'll even say a lot of Americans, if this guy's willing to stand up to all of these people, he's got to be doing something right because the people that were running the country before they sucked at the job and they didn't know what they were doing. And the country was bet was worse off as a result. He's 77. Yeah. Biden's 81 going on 82. Nancy Pelosi just broke news talking about she, she's going, she's going to return to office. I, 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 was she 88? I, I don't know how old she is, but it's in the eighties. Okay. <laughs> and, 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 and you know, Mitch McConnell, God bless him, not wishing anything on. He froze not once or twice. Clearly mm-hmm. something was wrong. I don't know what it is. I know the doctor's reports came out and said he's okay, but we saw what we saw. As a 44-year-old congressman, I'm imagining you have aspirations. Some people have said governor of Florida in 2026. Others have said vice president down the line. How do you feel about the fact that these folks in their late 70s and 80s won't go home? Well, I mean, look, for me, it's are you mentally capable? That's number one. Yeah. Or do you have like a job in front of you? Correct. With Mitch, my view, it's time for Mitch to step down from Republican leadership. If he leaves the Senate, that's something for the Senate to decide. But to be the Republican leader. Yeah, it's time. It's time for that to end. I mean, Joe Biden, let's just be perfectly honest. And I don't this is not a political thing because nobody wants to see anybody go through this. 
but he's not the same man he was four years ago or even two years. I've ago. said that. And everybody can everybody can see it. Mm-hmm. It's clear as day. Nancy Pelosi is not going to be speaker anymore. So I don't get it. Donald Trump is running for president. And when I last talked to him a week ago, two weeks ago, mental capacity is still there. Energy level is still there. So as long as you have your faculties about you, I don't really think age is the thing. Mm-hmm. But if you're not in a leadership position anymore, but you're just hanging on for the sake of hanging on, it's it's time to go. It's time for a new breed. Two things I want to say. First of all, Nancy Pelosi is 83. So I wanted to get that okay. out the way. I all joked right. around by 80. She's 83. Mitch McConnell is 81. And secondly, I appreciate the point that you brought up about age because I certainly didn't mean to apply any ageism. It doesn't matter how old yeah. you are. Yeah. If your faculties are in order and you're lucid, you're cogent, you're smart, you're ready to go, you're sharp, I'm good with it. No problem with that. Having said all of that, um, governor of Florida, is that you yeah. in 26, 2026? Is that something that you're going to pursue? Yeah, I think so. Um, look, in politics, here's what I know, Stephen A. You can't plan politics. You work hard, you do your job, um, and then you see what happens in front of you. I've seen people try to plan politics. It never works out because something's happening all the time. But, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of people in Florida, in my state, you know, they've come to me and they want me to run. That's something they want me to look at. And for me, Florida, we're the best state in the country. We, we're the exact opposite of California. And mm-hmm. I, well, I will say about California, man, that weather, oh my oh, gosh, it's just gorgeous it's the, out there. They, they're, stealing, uh, they're stealing from the country. It's on another they're level. From the country. It's on another level, but, no question. But, but the government's insane. It makes no sense. It's crazy. And that's why people are fleeing California. Mm-hmm. They're coming to Florida. So I think the job for the next governor mm-hmm. is to keep that momentum that Florida has built going. Well, there according we to Gavin Newsom, governor of Florida, of, of governor of California, on the show with Hannity when he was going head to head with them, he was he swapping down. There's more people leaving Florida to go to California oh, than there are people oh, going stop. from California. Gavin, that's what he said. Stop. That's what he, he said. I, 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 he you, you, you saw him, right? He did say that. He did. I'm not making it up. Listen, let me t- quick point about Gavin Newsom. Uh, you know, he's that guy that got drafted quarterback, and you realize after two games he can't play. That's him. That guy can't play. He's he's terrible at this. And I will also say for Joe Biden, it's the same thing. We drafted him number one overall, realized after about two months that this man is terrible. And so we're stuck. And unfortunately, you're stuck with him through the season. So you got to replace your quarterbacks, America. If they can't play, they can't play. Last question for you. What's more appealing? Vice president of the United States in the Trump administration. If Trump wins the nominee, which mm-hmm. it appears he will, uh, vice president or Governor of Florida. Oh, I've not been posed with that question before. Um, it's ship. It's an easy answer for me. I don't know what it is for you, but it's an easy. I mean, one look, for me. it's all. It's always cool to be in charge. I'll say that it's always because I mean, e- even when you're vice president, you are number two. That's right. But it's always cool to be in charge. But I got to tell you, with where the country is, I probably would say vice president. Because why? Because here's why. Um. Part of it is policy. Part of it is doing getting the country on track from my perspective. The other part is bringing back like a political uh, and cultural cohesion to the country. I think people get frustrated when Republicans and Democrats don't compromise. Mm-hmm. But that's in part because there's no real political cohesion. Yeah, but can you really pull that off from the vice presidency? I don't know if you I can pull I'm that off from good. that position. I think I'm pretty good, man. Yeah, I think I'm pretty good. I, I just don't know I'll if you'd be allowed on. to be pretty good because I think they'd get in your way. Uh, you find a way. I have to go on first take and prove it to you. Okay. Well, you know, you first of all, you'd lose. That's the one place I can't beat you <laughs> here. I can't beat you here because you know your stuff. I got to research half the stuff you said. But when it comes to first take, that's sports, and you're a Cowboys fan, you have no hope. No hope at all. Well, hold on. Well, hold on. I just want to say, listen, first of all, I got to give full props to the Denver Nuggets and Nikola Jokic. That dude is crazy. He's he's amazing. He's special. But I will also say, I like what the Lakers have done in the offseason. I like the pieces. You know, I just need LeBron. I need AD. I need AD to be consistent. I need 28 and 10. Mm -hmm. But listen to this on a serious note. I got to do my research on half the things you said because you know your stuff. And I don't, I don't, that this is not my realm. But I will tell you this Um, it was an honor to talk to you. And I love talking to you. And and it, it's hard to root against you when you say some of the things that you say and you break it down the way that you break it down. And I just want you to know I'm an independent. I, I listen to both sides and, and, you know, deal with things from there. You are always welcome on any of my shows to speak your mind about any pertinent subject that I'm broaching. 
Make no mistake about it. So I just want you to know that and uh, keep in touch. All the best to you, and we'll talk down the road. I'll make it a point to meet up with you face-to-face and meet you for the first time. Absolutely, man. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Take I care appreciate yourself. it. Representative Byron Donald's right here with Stephen A. Thanks to him. He made a lot of good points. We can get around it any way we want to, but the man made a lot of good points, okay? Think about that, and we'll talk about this on my next episode and beyond. Thanks for watching another episode of the Stephen A. Smith Show. You can watch me at the very least every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday over the digital airwaves of YouTube. Like and follow the Stephen A. Smith Show on YouTube. By the way, click the bell to get notified of all of our new content, and be sure to pick up a copy of my New York Times bestselling memoir, Straight Shooter, a memoir of second chances and first takes. Until next time, this is Stephen A. signing off. Peace and love, everybody. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13, an Odyssey company in association with Stephen A. Podcast Productions. Episodes of No Mercy are available now for free wherever you get your podcasts.